1: When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah, <laughs> did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected, and we made it the one. In a sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive, on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled.
2: I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life.
0: I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders, and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers, and seekers here to start conversations because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. I've been keeping a secret for a while now, but I'm not going to bury the lead and make you finish the entire episode to hear it. Today, I'm incredibly excited to be speaking with Erica Chitty, and I'm incredibly honored to tell you that Erica has agreed to join me as our new co-host on the Goop podcast. For those of you who don't already know Erica, she is the CEO and co-founder of Loom, a well-being platform that is empowering women through sexual and reproductive health education Erica has a brilliant, razor sharp mind. She sees the world with such complexity and clarity. She has a stunning energy and a beautiful appreciation for science, social justice, and spirituality. Erica is a teacher through and through, and she has served so many via her work as a doula, author, and educator. There's a lot of compelling synergy between Goop and Loom, and Erica and I have an uncanny number of shared interests. I've admired her work for a long time, and we've been fortunate to partner with her on several projects at Goop. But this podcast collaboration will be a really special one. Moving forward, Erica and I will take turns interviewing the kinds of thought leaders we've become known for speaking with on the Goop podcast. I'm so thrilled for you to have a chance to see these conversations through her eyes. But first, today, there's my own conversation with my dear friend, Erica. As tends to be the case when we get together, we covered a lot of ground and she taught me so much yet again. Here we go. I'm so thrilled to be getting to talk to you today. And, you know, I think it's like you have such an amazing approach to the world because you have this incredible intellectualism, you're an educator. And then you also, and you're so brilliant, like your mind is razor sharp. And then you have this like incredible, spiritual, ethereal, I don't even know how to describe (laughs) it, like peace to you. And, you know, it's a rare combination and it's a combination that I respond to so positively in people. It's like how you're able to amalgamate those two things, like, you know, academic rigor and warm-hearted spirituality. It's like, it's so, you know, you are somebody that I obviously respect and admire so much. So I wanted to talk a little bit about Loom, which is your platform for empowering and educating women around sexual health, reproductive health. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about how how did you come to find the platform, like to, to found it, to be a founder?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. Sometimes your platform finds you in a way. I think before, you know, cut to present day, about to launch this digital platform, you know, I was a doula and health educator for about a decade and was very much in the community, very much in service of women, people, non binary people that were going through pregnancy, becoming parents, you know, having miscarriages navigating you know birth control fertility whatever the sexual and reproductive health concern or issue was that was really my core focus you know and i think especially with this conversation i feel like it's really important to highlight the fact that you know my move from this physical experience that my co-founder and i Quinn Lumberg created together in LA to this digital experience that is about to be launched really was kind of propagated, or I would say given its real push out into the world by another woman, a really dear friend of mine named Kat Schneider, who is the founder and CEO of Ritual, which is like a nutraceuticals company that a lot of women probably, or people listening to this probably take. And we met at the start of Ritual and, kind of at the start of, start of Loom in some sense or another. And as we got to know each other, she was like, you should really consider raising venture capital. And I remember when she said that, I felt really curious, but also kind of confused. I was like, well, what do I need that for? And like, how would that work? And and she really took the time to kind of walk me through, you know, what scalability could look like and how, you know, the total addressable market or the TAM, as they say, in the venture world for women was huge. And that sexual reproductive health was a completely underserved area. And that, you know, femtech, so we're thinking, well, when I say femtech, I'm talking about wearables and, and interventions that are tangible, like goods that help to, you know, either address an issue that is anatomical or physiological or otherwise, was starting to really take off and that the kind of education sector within sexual reproductive health had had little or no innovation, which I was very aware of, and that there was just, there was a wedge there. So again, it's, I I just think it's so important when you think about starting a business, or if you are a woman or a marginalized person in business, especially in startup it's so important for you to kind of be scanning your environment looking for other people like you who you see have like all of the skill set and you know that kind of initial kind of you know those those initial energetics and like introducing them to okay here's another way that you could do it that could potentially be helpful because i think for black women bipoc people you know lgbtqia people there isn't a natural path into the startup world or founding a platform. There really has to be this diversification of of resources, this identification of one's privilege, and really within that identification, thinking about, okay, what are what are the levers I have to create accessibility, you know? And, and and sometimes that really is just identifying other people around you that are marginalized that could fit into the world that you were in and bringing them in. Or, you know, it's trying to figure out other ways to do that within, you know, the company that you're building. So mm-hmm. that's in terms of like how I got to founding or how I got to this point in terms of yeah. this digital experience, it very much you know, was supported by, you know, by, by another woman in my life. And I think that's very full circle in the sense that the reason why I got into this work in the first place was to serve women. Such an interesting
0: way into creating femtech in a digital platform to educate. It's like taking all of your years of expertise and anecdotal experience with relationships with women who were experiencing one Issue or another, or going through the most transformative process of their lives, and then like taking that and creating data and, and a plat- and an educational platform from that. So as you said, it was an energetic experience, right? How do you take what you're able, what you were able to do in your life as a doula, and an incredibly impactful connection, and make it scalable? Like, how do you take the feeling from real life and make it kind of permeable like that so that on the internet, so that other people can experience it?
1: Yeah, I really love that question because, you know, I think in the past three or four months, I've had some pretty deep unlocks around just a lot of the messaging that we've received as women, as we've received as people around healthcare and health education. So, you know rolling it back to this idea of being a doula and somehow you know bottling that 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 care experience and then digitizing it you know for me when I really sat back and thought about medicine so both my parents are care providers my dad's an infectious disease specialist my mom is a nurse and I really grew up in a home that was very care orientated although there was you know there's I, there's so much trauma in my family of origin. But that aside, there was also so much exposure and access and discipline. And, and funny how those
0: things are oftentimes very much not mutually exclusive.
1: <laughs> There's usually one or the other or more or less, but somehow there was a weird positive calibration of, of both. But, you know, with growing up with parents as clinicians, I had a lot of access to care settings, to the hospital environment. You know, when I was little, my dad would like take me on rounds with him back in like the 80s and 90s when doctors could still do that. And I would like go into the patient room with him or I would sit at the nurse's station and like talk to the nurses and, and hang out. And then we would always go to the car wash and then go to McDonald's, whatever.
0: I like the details. <laughs> it's very visual. It brings me to your childhood.
1: Yeah, it was a really like special special thing that my dad and I used to, would do. But going back to this idea of kind of bottling the dual experience, my exposure to having parents as clinicians really gave me this understanding that doctors, nurses, care providers are human beings. You know, they they have a life outside of the bedside or outside of the operating room. And, you know, because of my innate understanding of that, it's and, and my deep respect for science i really understand that their providers care providers doctors nurses they're really just trying to do the best that they possibly can and you know i think for me when you look at the kind of academic experience for most clinicians it, it most of it lacks that care component that the softer side of 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 care and you know when you think about where you know medical schools are housed in you know in in major academic institutions they're usually like in the arts and sciences you know section and i think what medicine is really lost is the art the the artistry of it the the creativity of it like the, the, the kind of artistic care science kind of intersection. And I think think that's that's really
0: because, because of the, how the model of healthcare has evolved and because of litigiousness and, you know, protectionism and like it's changed the approach from an energetic exchange with a patient to a more like self-preservational approach.
1: I definitely think that it's all of those things that you just mentioned, but in connection to that, I think the kind of foundational issue is is, is patriarchy and, and, and misogyny. There's been this focus on providing care through the lens of disease and through the lens of pathology. And there has been very little energy or time put into teaching care providers how to care through the lens of humanity, through the lens right. of well-being. And so doulas really live in that space for the most part. We're not there to extend the pathology model. We're there to really be with the person and try to help them optimize whatever experience they're inside of. And I think that's been the major unlock for me, especially when it comes to Loom, because, you know, the the, the medical system as it stands, as incredible as it is, and I have deep, deep reverence for it. Again, as a child of clinicians, I have and who, and and as a person who just deeply leans into as much science as possible, you know, you know, that aside, it's a very paternalistic structure. So it's very much like, okay, the doctor is just going to take care of it, or my provider is just going to take care of it. And I'm just going to, you know, lean back because I couldn't possibly understand, you know, all of the information that's needed in order for me to, you know, to feel well. And, that's actually a fallacy. Yes, there is deep complexity to medicine, especially as we move into things like oncology and you know and, and neurology, et cetera. But you know, at its base, especially with sexual and reproductive health, it's it's much more simplistic. And most of the things that happen to women in their bodies within their sexual and reproductive health experience are not pathophysiological. They're not disease-oriented, they're just normal functioning that we have been locked out of understanding. And that's really where I feel that there needs to be a deep shift within the healthcare model, which basically got accelerated because of the pandemic in the sense that, you know, telemedicine appointments in my opinion, are essentially health education appointments. Right. You you can't have any care administered digitally. So, you know, your your doctor, your nurse, your midwife is asking you a lot of questions. You're reporting on those questions. They're giving you some recommendations, which basically is education. And and that does have a curative effect. And so I think in terms of bottling up what doulas do, for me it was bottling up this focus on well-being, this focus on education, this focus on priming people to be able to become their own advocate and be able to have a care experience, not necessarily a care outcome, because those are two different things, but a care experience that feels autonomous, mm. a care experience that feels also repeatable. Like I could do this again, you know, and and, and continue, to, continue to have a more engaged and a more, you know, positive experience. So I think I think that's really the thrust for me is, is and, and what's really kind of fueling Loom is this idea that health education is actually healthcare. And we've been told for years that it's kind of optional, especially when it comes to something like pregnancy. It's like, are you going to take a birth class? Or I don't know, are you going to take a feeding class or a breastfeeding class? And there's this idea that, that it's optional, which to me doesn't make any sense.
0: I always feel like modern culture, it's like, not only is there this, abdication of responsibility, like that women have, like you just described in medical care, this paternalistic structure, which makes a woman feel comfortable abdicating, like, I don't know, you know, I'll just do what, what the bosses tell me to do with, you know, whether it's about her body or finances, like I still find myself trying to dismantle some of that thinking that paternalistic thinking around like, I don't know what to do, or I don't, I don't understand this, you know, facet of, of business or whatever, and so I love that the approach of your work is about leaning into the questions and the education, leaning into the agency and the autonomy. So, like, tell us when Loom finally launches, and I'm waiting. I signed up for my email, and I'm waiting <laughs> to launch like months ago, months and months ago. So, so when you launch, can you tell me a little bit about what will be available? For women on the platform,
1: yeah. So our focus really is to provide health education and to really be a woman's body partner throughout her entire sexual and reproductive health experience. And so I really fertility, the, fertility, whole, the whole pregnancy, the whole nine yards. But we are starting with pregnancy and postpartum, and the reason for that was because that's really the world that I came from. And we also felt that there was an acute need with the pandemic to really focus in on, you know, what I consider to be and what we consider to be at Luma, a marginalized population that really needs resources to help them be able to just like move through this kind of tectonic shift we're going through right now both you know in our personal lives and you know and beyond and so from pregnancy and postpartum we're going to move into sex and intimacy fertility and birth control periods and menopause and then abortion and miscarriage It classes or one-on-one it's going to be on-demand classes which was a very specific decision in the sense that we understand that people have quite a lot going on in their lives. And as you know, the whole attention economy, we really wanted to make sure that people could tap in and out and, and really dose for themselves without any pressure of I need to be here at a certain time or get out at a certain time because so much of our lives exist that way and you know I think what we've learned too from just how people consume education or consume content it happens that whenever is best for them. And so it's asynchronous there will be, you know, some live community event components to it so that they'll in order to kind of bring folks together but the main focus really is come in whenever you want and get the information that you need through a lens that is whole person affirming that is really moving away from this paternalistic model and really giving women and the people that support them, you know, just the, val- the validation and like the framework to really engage with their care providers in a way that's going to be positive.
0: Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know, the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. I, I just wanted to touch on the
1: New York Times piece that you wrote, and it's a beautiful piece. Yeah, so the piece was called Protecting, protecting Your Birth a guide for Black mothers, and it was co-authored with Dr. Erica Cahill, who is a dear friend yes, of mine, right? And also one of our advisors at Loom. And you know, interestingly, although that piece came out in October of last year, I actually pitched the piece in June of 2019, probably. Yes, I think that's I think that's correct. So it was about a year and a half, kind of in the making, and 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 the reason why. I I pitched the piece was I really heard about the statistics and the fact that Black women were six to 12 times more likely to die during childbirth and beyond, just kind of in the first year postpartum, than their white counterparts probably about three and a half, four years ago, like right when the data came out. And I would say a year before it hit the news as this, you know, breaking story that people really wanted to kind of galvanize around. And so, you know, in that kind of year and a half of, of knowing the data, I, I really had enough time to build, you know, enough frustration around that data. And also, you to kind of acclimate to the reality of it. And I really wanted to create something that would be an attempt to try and address Mm -hmm. the inequities and also to address racial anxiety and to also address implicit bias. And, you know, the things that were important about that piece were namely it can't be a black woman's job to also Have to explain to her care provider what is to have to explain to her care provider how racism impacts her care. And I really felt that it needed to be, you know, a two-way street of communication. Again, premised on this idea that I've had my whole life, that care providers are human beings. They're trying to do the best job that they can, but they've had no training around bias, no training around anti-racism within their medical career. And so the idea really was to create this tool and to really bypass a lot of the red tape, yellow tape within the medical um, system and community, especially the journal community, in that instead of having it published through a journal and then eventually trickle its way down to the hospital floor because usually really good research that comes out you know in a journal takes anywhere from like seven to ten years to eventually hit the hospital floor and to start being implemented mm-hmm. you know we kind of wanted to go the reverse route and just throw something right into the media so that people could immediately start using it and you know the the support around the piece since it came out has been really incredible. I think it's, it's easier. It's easier to rest in a very clear binary, right? It's easier to be, to be like, this person is bad. This person is good. These people have suffered. These people have not suffered as much. Okay. Those polarities or those binaries are very clear, but I find the most comfort in the liminal space, the place that really problematizes the binary and and starts to ask, okay, there is pain on both sides. There is intensity on both sides. How do we try to create something that's going to provide agency and to start to, how do we start to reconcile? How do we start to acknowledge the truth and reconcile? Which very much, you know, growing up in South Africa, Kind of moving there shortly after apartheid, this idea of truth and reconciliation, you know we we know that racism exists, we know that you know living in a black body is intensely painful and 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 scary, and we know that our suffering has been at the hands of of white people. then, from there, how do we start to make change and we can start to do that by acknowledging that that is true, first and foremost, but then by creating tools to create better dialogue and to bring that truth into a one-to-one experience between a, a Black woman and her care provider. And if we don't bring race into the room, if we don't talk about the fact that you are my white care provider, I am a Black patient, a lot of the choices and a lot of the things that are going to go on in our relationship are going to be impacted by racism then then we're losing. And so that was the whole point behind the piece was to give people coping mechanisms and scripting to begin to have that conversation because the only way you can fight implicit bias and to f- and, and to fight racism is to actually bring it up because you have a little like cancer pin or you know rainbow heart on your doctor's lab coat your nurse's outfit doesn't make you not racist. It just doesn't. It just makes you who you are. So you know, getting into that discomfort and, and 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 highlighting that is how how you bring it to a provider's mind that oh, this is a black person. Oh, this is a black person. That's actually important. And what does it mean that this person a black person? And so that is the kind of that's the type of reorganization and 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 reframing that's needed. And it's not just needed in in, in the medical world, it's really needed throughout almost every industry that we have that, you know, we are not all just one race, we are humans, but how we look, and how we are perceived impacts what our, our core lived experience is going to be like. And in everything i do especially when i was writing that piece for the for the new york times i really had to check my own you know privilege and access in the sense that you know my experience as a black woman is actually not every black woman's experience black people are not a monolith you know and and so i think in that sense of black people are not a monolith my ability to transmute and to go get capital and to push past is my individual or individuated black experience mm-hmm. that for some is going to be replicable, for others is going to feel foreign. And you know, all of that is 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 valid. But I, I, I definitely just want to highlight that I know what I am doing is is different and is also challenging and is also intense labor and is also exhausting yeah. at the same time even just this conversation with you right now as much as i you know deeply admire you and what you've built and i'm sure at some point we'll <laughs> talk about just how long i've admired that you know there is exhaustion like i'm tired as i sit in my black body i'm tired you know, but at the same time, I'm not too tired to fight. We can't move forward if we don't try to do something different, something radical, something you know, that might not make sense on the surface, but over time will continue to, you know, permeate and and, and, and do its work. And so I think it's it's all about being open to risk, you know, and having a high tolerance for discomfort, which as a black person you know i do
0: and it's interesting too because you know if i think about you and i as friends or our life mission our life's missions like there's so much alignment in how we are as women and friends and support systems and the drive behind our businesses to really eliminate shame to create space for women where they can fully express and inhabit who they are to speak from their truest place, et cetera. So like, for me, you know, it's, I I think of like the alignment in a segment of women, right? Who are dedicated to that. And so, you know, I'm just so honored that, and now I'll get to an important piece of information, but like, I'm, I'm so honored that you have agreed to enter this space with me. And so for those of you who are hearing this, this is, I, this is a big announcement from you, and Erica, <laughs> somehow, despite the fact that she's a founder and CEO and educator and raising capital and all the things she has agreed to be my co-host of the Goop podcast. And I'm so thrilled, about, you know, and it's so funny because when I was, Going through the process of thinking, like who would my dream person be? Like you just were the first person that I thought of.
1: So sweet. It's sweet. true.
0: You know, I feel like you've been in our Goop ecosystem as an as a content provider and as an educator for a long time. You know, a lot of your you've been a celebrity at Goop headquarters for a long time. So many <laughs> of our staffers person- have you know followed your work and and we've obviously collaborated you with stories and and Q&As like you're someone that we just really look up to and admire and you know touch, like coming back to what i was talking about in the beginning i do feel like there's so much alignment in terms of like i i, I don't i i feel like you know there's there's a certain frequency like and sometimes you just you, you connect with somebody on like a mission level, on a curiosity level. And I'm so thrilled that we're kind of merging these, these worlds together. And so I wanted to ask you like, why did you say yes? And I'm so happy you did,
1: but what was your, what was your thought process? <laughs> well, you know, it actually wasn't an easy decision because my plate is incredibly full right now with just Loom and pandemic and, you know, just I could name so many things. But, you know, it's it's, it's a funny thing. I mean, this is probably a great way to to dive into something I, that you and I actually haven't talked about in, in real time, but I know you have heard different details about it. But, you know, two things happened in 2008. So you started your newsletter in London, and I got accepted to Goldsmiths for my post-grad. And, you know, I got accepted into their contemporary art history program. I really, you know, many lifetimes ago wanted to become a curator. That was like the direction I wanted to go. I wanted to specifically focus on contemporary art.
0: Me and too, by so- the way. I was, that's what I was studying in college. That's what I wanted to do.
1: Oh sh- no way! I but, well, I, I mean, but okay, this doesn't doesn't surprise me <laughs> at all. But that's the thing. So you know, I was already spending a lot of time in London between there and South Africa, and was planning to like move there and do the whole thing. And you know, again, this idea of being mission aligned around uh, deep curiosity and all of that, I honestly consider the internet to be my best friend. I love my computer and I love just like, just diving in there. I'm, I'm, I'm a true nerd. Like at it's, I'm just like, loves the internet. And like, so I dug around and like, I don't even remember how I found the newsletter. And so what was interesting, it's like, I got to see London you know, through your eyes, and I, I remember thinking, you know, at the time, it's like you were an expat, and so you were kind of like feeling out the different neighborhoods and like where to shop and where to eat, and like, you know, I got introduced to Agla Tallini and like the neighborhood I was thinking about living in, and so, you know, this is many, many years ago. So I've actually been in your ecosystem, just you know, picking up the breadcrumbs and the morsels, you know, for a really, really long time, and so. And cut to PS, this is probably something else (laughs) that you don't know. I think I probably, you need to go back in MailChimp and go look for my email (laughs) address because I think I'm like probably like first like 200 subscribers and like early adoptee so early that when I moved to LA, I guess like eight years ago, I think because, and this is pre-social media, pre all like the social proof things, you know, I got invited to Tracy Anderson's studio opening in Brentwood. And I went, I had just moved to LA. (laughs) I remember I went by myself because I was like, I guess I'm just going to go to this thing. And it was like not transferable. It could only be me. And I went and like that night, like I didn't meet you, but I saw you, I saw Chris, I saw the kids, I saw Apple and Moses, I saw, who else was there? I think like Kim Kardashian was there, Tracy Ellis Ross was there. I remember Tracy was like having like a little like tea or something like as you like walked in. I just was like, what the fuck am I doing here? But okay. (laughs) And like, I was there for like half an hour and then I just like, you know, went home and I remember this is just pre so many things and it would still be a couple years until, you know, Goop would even feature me for the first time, but there's just been this like weird karmic thing about what, how, how you kind of navigate things and the things that your, your, your deep curiosity, there's like a connection between your deep curiosity and my deep curiosity. And also the fact that you, didn't know any of this about how long I've just been, you know, invested and looking around. But then you reached out to me in like my beta and my really early stage to kind of use your privilege and your platform to expose more people to, you know, what I was doing. And so that really was the unlock for me was that some of this seems predetermined. And I also think, you know, you've always been early. You're like, you always kind of see around corners. And I think the way I feel about this is it's almost like a sonic collab. And I think that that's really disruptive and exciting. Right. And, you know, when I look at women, I I see like that is a indigenous woman, that is a Latino woman, that is a black woman, that is a Southeast Asian or East Asian woman. Like I don't I don't have the privilege of seeing everyone as the same, but I think what's also important to acknowledge in that is that you are using your platform and privilege to help create and evolve the conversation within your community and within your your realm because I do feel... And one of the reasons why I said yes was I know that this platform is so huge and so many different people listen to it. And for me, because my deepest desire always is to blow shit up and, you know, make it uncomfortable and, (laughs) you know, it's sex and reproductive health. Like, that's not super chill. I mean, no one wants to talk about periods and, you know, shitting when you push a baby out of your vagina and menopause and... (laughs) You know, and squirting and, you know, nipples. I do. I want to talk about all of it. All (laughs) of it. And and then to also just, you know, just, it seemed fun. (laughs) It is fun. I think you're going to really like
0: it. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners.
2: When it comes to putting together your home, a great rug can make all the difference. A rug is really what pulls a room together and creates harmony. Nordic Knots offers a curated collection of rugs and timeless, high-quality essentials. They collaborate with leading designers and are the insider rug brand gracing some of the world's most beautiful homes. They have a wide-ranging collection, but we'll just talk about a few favorites today. The luxurious Grand Collection is known for its simple design, stunning colors, and high-quality wool. But if you're feeling a bit more bold, their designer collaborations are made with world renowned designers and interior architects. Their Good Weave certified rugs are handmade and woven in all natural materials, like their super soft and beautiful New Zealand wool. At Nordic Knots, they make the process of rug shopping easy and enjoyable. And they always offer fast and free shipping from the US. To explore their rug collections, head to nordicknots.com use promo code inner circle to get free rug samples.
0: Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Can can we talk about squirting for a second?
1: Please, always.
0: Can you <laughs> can you tell me like I I have a really good friend who this happens to when she orgasms. What 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 biologically is happening then? And and the reason that I bring it up is because She's really embarrassed about it and and I don't think she should be
1: oh no, she should not be embarrassed about it at all, and it boils down to before I even try and answer the question such little <laughs> such little fucking research is done on women and their bodies, yeah like such little, even even in pharmaceuticals like very, almost none of the drugs are tested on women. So Mm -hmm. when it comes to anatomy and just sexual functioning, literally the actual like anatomical drawings of a vulva, like only improved like 30 or 40 years ago, you know, the drawings, the actual anatomical drawings of women's bodies, like, you know, continue to be improved I mean most people didn't even know that a clitoris the, the actual structures of the clitoris extend down into you know into the, the pelvic region and, and terminate at the you know at the vagina like and that the vagina is actually a whole not the not the whole thing I mean so anyway I, I say all of that to say her shame and her discomfort makes sense to me because our culture has done nothing but make women feel that way in terms of what's actually happening from a anatomical and physiological perspective. I actually can't fully explain that correctly because there's so many kind of, I would say, opposing theories to what is happening because we haven't actually done enough research about it to know exactly for sure. But what I will say is that my understanding is that the fluid that's released is not P because it doesn't have creatinine which is the protein that exists in urine. So it is some other kind of fluid, but we don't actually know what kind of fluid it is. And like squirting is to me, you know, when I would teach my sex class at Loom, the thing that I always try to reframe for folks is, you know, most of us encounter squirting from porn, and porn is a cinematic medium. Mostly bad, unfortunately. Some good. Wow, you're giving it a lot of <laughs> okay <laughs> for the most part. And so it's going to want to capture experiences that have high impact. So a lot of the squirting you see in porn is like high velocity. It's like projectile. It's like going across the screen, you know? And like some people who squirt are more like puddlers, you know? It's like it's more of just like a soft release with like, like a big puddle underneath them. And so or they're gushers. With- it happens with orgasm it typically does happen with orgasm but it can also happen in between and i think again too you know you will, mm. we always want to problematize this idea of orgasm you know at its base you know because th- there's just so much we don't know and you know what is an orgasm for me might not be an orgasm for you or or someone else and so and also for a some people you know having sex, whether that's intercourse or outer course, the focus actually isn't orgasming it's more reaching these you know d- a different quality of peak or a different quality of, of sensation that's not climactic. And so anyway, I I could talk all day about this type of <laughs> this type of thing and so I think, I think one of the things to just throw into, you know, the crucible of maybe why that is happening is leaning back into this framework of patriarchy and the fact that we live in a society that hates women that just is riddled with misogyny. And so, you know, again, I just talked about the intersection that I live at black gay woman, but if you live at the intersection of women, like, I think the experience of being a woman, in general is traumatic in this culture it, period it's just tr- it's just traumatic they don't they don't want us to really work they don't want us to own businesses they don't want us to really speak our minds they don't want us to have sex they don't want us to show our bodies they don't want they don't they don't they don't and so you know how many men are reporting like not being able to (laughs) orgasm, like not that many. (laughs) Cause you know, the the culture is structured to continue to empower them. So of course they are engaged enough to just, you know they're they're enfranchised enough to come. (laughs) Whereas I think women are continuously disenfranchised constantly in a state of fight or flight, slap on the pandemic, you know, 2 million women falling out of the workforce let alone if you have a child at home and you're you're doing whatever it looks like to to parent and and all of these other things it's just there's so much ecological environmental pressure on women that how can you come a lot of the time unless again like i said you have that relationship with it already as a soothing tool and because we live in a culture that's so like you know, handcuffed by religiosity, so many women have never been invited to develop a masturbation practice, you know, or they've been, you know, violated because there's so much, you know, sexual assault and, you know, so many people report being, having been abused at, at different stages of their lives.
0: Yeah, so you, you bring it's up hard. a really interesting point. and And then again, and, and then I should say, on top of that or compounding that is this idea that, if you can't easily orgasm, there's something wrong with you. You know, we also share the burden, right? Not only of not being able to feel safe enough to actually experience orgasm, but then it's our fault somehow. We can't. Yeah. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. X is an environmental company that aims to empower people to make a positive impact on the planet. They have created a simple platform to help you make up for your carbon emissions by supporting climate-friendly projects. You can earn shareable badges based on how long you've been offsetting, and your subscription will go towards supporting new initiatives and carbon offsetting projects that have been independently verified to have removed CO2 from the atmosphere. You can choose a project that is meaningful to you, such as planting trees in deforested regions of the Amazon, and investing in energy-efficient and renewable resources around the world. For the Goop podcast team, CarbonX wanted to cover our team's carbon footprint. They donated a subscription for us to support an energy-efficient cookstoves program in Uganda. To learn more about CarbonX, head to their website at carbonx.com. That's carbon-x.com or download the CarbonX app. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. I want to know, like, what conversations are you looking forward to having on the Goop
1: podcast? Uh, you know, I, <laughs> I'm i so excited to have all kinds of conversations. I think, you know, most people that may know of me know that I'm all about sexual reproductive health, and I'll definitely be touching on some of those concepts you know, during this time. But actually what I'm really excited to talk about is all of my other curiosities. So, you know, thinking about surveillance capitalism. Mind you, so many of the things that I'm interested in are being championed and written about by women, which is just a whole nother slice of conversation to have. But yeah, like surveillance capitalism, like the intersection and, and 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 the and the problems that there are when it comes to you know technology and you know and and bias, especially bias for women. So that's really interesting to me, and and really helping just take the lid off of this kind of like rapid you know growth that's happened within technology that most of us have kind of just turned away from. There's just so much to kind of learn inside there that I think just extends in so many different directions. I'm also really excited to talk about death. I think it's something that we don't spend a lot of time, you know, thinking about. Again, it connects right back to this idea of patriarchy, this idea of invincibility. We will live forever when we don't. And I think that women are much closer to this idea of we will not allow always beer. And so really wanting to talk about that, especially in a year where so many people have lost, you know, lost lives, like just really thinking about that grief, you know, framework and 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 how we can really welcome and, and get closer to death, but still be very much, you know, alive. And um, also really interested in talking about drugs, you know, as a <laughs> child of clinicians, I'm a big believer in chemistry and and, and, and how it can be used to, like, improve one's, you know, neurological I- experience. And so, you know, I really want to talk about how we don't talk about drugs, whether that is prescription or recreational, and how that, that lack of conversation really keeps the view we have on drugs as it being something that is only going to like, make you end up houseless, going to ruin your life, only like lazy, you know, people who don't have goals or dreams, you know, use drugs. We don't have a moderate conversation around around drugs. And I think especially in this pandemic with there being so much trauma mm-hmm. and so much lack of calibration for people in their systems, you know, really exploring what, exploring the pharmacological potential that is there is actually going to be really important and I want to dig into that. So like a large range of things. I've talked so much about race and anti-racism in in, in our time together so I didn't bring it up immediately but there are some really incredible thought leaders within that movement that I really want to have conversations with Mm -hmm. to just continue the dialogue and hear what they're thinking right now, you know, almost a year to when George Floyd was was murdered, and you know this racial awakening began because you know the the work that we are all required to do and participate to and to bear witness to is for the rest of our lives, mm-hmm. and so there is going to be continual growth and iteration and evolution within that space, and so you know really wanting to dialogue w- with some of those people and some of those leaders, and then. I would think the the kind of the last thing to kind of tack on to that is I really want to talk about emotions and, and the body and kind of how we, how we divorce the two and how deeply interconnected they are in terms of just, you know, the food we feed ourselves, you know, the decision-making behind that. And yeah, and just really trying to draw these connections for myself you know, and answer questions for myself and then hopefully be able to answer, you know, questions for for other people.
0: I think that's how it works. That's the beauty of this, you know? Yeah. Okay, last question. How do you get centered? How do you bring synergy between body and emotions? Like, how do you process and how do you get centered and how do you get to a joyful place?
1: Yeah, I think I'm going to go just all the way to the left and be more in a spiritualistic setting for a second. And then I'll jump to some science stuff. So, you know, in terms of my practices, I, you know, I started meditating when I was 17, had a really long meditation, you know, really long relationship with meditation and like spent some time in India in my early twenties and really, you know, connected with the power of kind of sitting still Mm. And and kind of being in the, being in the body, you know, in that way. And so, I would say that the kind of the most recent iteration.
0: What kind of meditation?
1: The most recent iteration is Kundalini Yoga, which I I really love for so many reasons. And I think one of the things I love about it the most is how much it leans into movement, and it leans it leans into movement almost dancing and chanting and a lot of kind of like very connected postures. And I think for me it really leans into like my ancestry. Like, you know, in Igbo culture, which has its own cosmology, which is something I've just been recently like starting to really dig into. And you gotta do a
0: podcast on that.
1: I actually I actually might because it's it's really rich and there's what what's what's fascinating there is how this rich cosmology and Igbo culture was abandoned after colonialization when the British came in and replaced with... You don't with Christ- say. You don't say. Mm-hmm. And replaced with Christianity and how there is just this like fracture now where, you know, that original cosmology is seen as like kind of problematic even for Nigerian people. And there's more of a focus on like, you know, a God and like Jesus and a white Jesus when we really had our own thing going on before. So, but what I liked about it uh, with Kundalini yoga is it's, there's a lot of chanting, a lot of movement. And so, and in Igbo culture, like just dancing and moving is just such an important part of, you know, of our culture. Like when you get married, you like dance down the aisle. It's like a whole thing. So Kundalini yoga is my go-to right now. And I love it because it's very precise. You know, I do like a three minute meditation most mornings and it's, It has a combination of chanting and this very specific posture that I kind of like sit in that's very kind of intense to be inside of it's kind of I've got my I've got my like thumbs up at my temples and my my arms are like out wide. and I'm sitting up really straight and I'm holding it. It's called addiction meditation is the name of that particular pose. I don't know the Sanskrit name, but that's the the English term and you know, I listen to that with the, you know, my month of music in the background and it's like very organizing for me. And what I love about it is it's only three minutes. I don't have like 20 minutes. I'm, I'm too like all over the place and not in a negative way. I just mean that I don't, I want it. I want it to feel intense and I want it to be short because there's just other things to do. So Kundalini in the morning has been like really mm, enchanting. Been really, yeah.
0: You'll have, love to, kund- you'll have to show me how to do it.
1: Definitely. I gotta plug you into to that. And there's also just like a deep spirituality to it. It's very connected to the lunar cycles, which also again to come out of this, you know, kind of more whitewashing of lunar cycles that has happened over the past, you know, five five to 10 years, well, basically forever, but specifically within when it comes to the moon cycles, you know, in Igbo culture, they used to tell time by the moon. There's a lot of cultures that do that. And so I also really resonate with that within the kind of Kundalini practice. And then like on the science side, a big thing for me has been vagal toning or basically like exercising or doing things that exercise my vagus nerve. And I, you, you know...
0: You know you, my feelings. <laughs> I, I, you know, I. It's funny because I think we have a very similar. We have some real similarities, not only kind of in intention and our work and the things that I touched on before. The music that you send me all the time, that's like brainwave, like that just puts me in my body in a way. And when you taught me bagel toning, it changed my life. You taught it to me during the pandemic. And I actually, I wanted, I have, we have to do some kind of piece on it so that people can learn how to do it because it's the most simple. It's like three simple moves, like tapping moves. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, it was so interesting. Like for me, it put me so right. And so I do it all the time. So thank you for that.
1: Yeah. The vagal toning and sensory integration in general is in the program that we're launching with and it will be a part of every single program. When is it launching? We're launching mid-spring, so probably late May early June, which is oh exciting. God. I can't wait.
0: And you know, I I as a, like the main reason that I wanted you to do this with us is because I learn so much from you. Every time we are together or in conversation, you teach me something really profound about i mean you know whatever my nervous system reproductive health tools to to feel better like things i should be reading brainwave music i just love you <laughs> and you're just you're you know you're such an educator through and through and it comes from such a place of upliftment and i'm just so thrilled that you're joining me on this journey
1: honestly yeah i i i feel really Honored to be a part of this, and you've taught me so much over the years. You know, for what I mean, way over a decade. However old, for fourteen years, I've been like picking up, picking up the little breadcrumbs, and so it's exciting to just be able to kind of return the favor. That's so awesome. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to my conversation with Erica Chitty. If you couldn't tell, I'm very eager and excited for Erica and Loom to launch their online platform this spring. To sign up and stay in the loop, go to loomhq.com and tune in next week to hear the first episode hosted by Erica. It's a great one. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.